And now it's time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, and welcome to We Are Just Christians. We're really glad you're with us today. Tell you a little bit about the show in just a moment. My name is Mike Schmidt. I'm one of the hosts of the show. I'm the preacher and one of the elders of the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard, and and uh, my partner in this show is Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing fine this morning, Mike. We're glad we can be with you. A couple of old men trying to feel good on a Sunday morning, <laughs> trying to get moving sometimes. Uh, woke up, I was telling Ray there at the station, woke up to no electricity this morning, so I had to get dressed in the dark and shave. So I, I don't know how. I went back and looked in the mirror gear, and like I was telling a minute ago, I had toothpaste on my chin. There's no telling what else is wrong. Uh, I'm sure somebody will point it out to me. But we got over here anyway, and we're glad we can be with you. And we're thankful that, uh, I tell you, when that kind of thing happens, it really makes you thankful for electricity and for all the all of the dozens of conveniences that you have that you take for granted every day. And I'm really kind of thankful that that's um, – you know, you get reminded about that once in a while. I'm very grateful for that. For that, well, we got a, we've got a couple uh, texts and calls we want to get to this morning. At least texts this morning. But let me tell you a little bit about a little bit about the show. We are just Christians. Is brought to you by the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. We're just a, a basic, undenominational church. Not so much non-denominational, but undenominational church here in Port St. Lucie. And the premise of the show is very simply that we believe we should go back to just the Bible for determining our belief and practice, not only about our personal lives, but also about the church itself. And that by going back to just the Bible, we can have unity among people who are believers in Christ. The things that divide us, among, among other things, are the persistence of human creeds and traditions and ideas that people believe, often without even examining those things, because that's what they were taught when they were growing up, or that's what their family was, and they've not really examined that. But I believe from being around people, most people would agree that we should follow the Bible. They love the Bible. They believe that if we did that and follow just Jesus' teachings, things would be better off. So that's the appeal that we make here, to be just New Testament Christians and just to be a Christian alone. Now, it's not an easy thing to do. It's difficult in application and all that. A lot of good ideas are difficult in application. We don't make any bones about that. But Gary and I here are on the radio presenting this idea, and we examine it not only from various different various scriptures that we bring up or that you call in about, but also by looking at current events and past events to see you know, you know, how we ought to be acting and behaving and what the Bible says about it. So if you call the show, and I'm going to give you the number, numbers in just a second. If you call the show, you can expect that we're going to try to give you an answer based on the scriptures. We might give you some of our thoughts on something, but on the other side of the coin, we're going to try to give you some scripture to look up because that's the source of our belief and knowledge. Now, before Gary gets to John 12, 48, which I know he's anxious to do because it's an extremely important verse, let me give you the phone numbers. You can reach We Are Just Christians at 772-340-1590. It's the regular call-in number for WPSL. 772-340-1590. And we have, uh, and you can reach us anywhere in the United States with that number. We'd be glad to talk to anybody about whatever is on your mind. You don't have to have some great topic to discuss. You can just ask a question or make a comment. We'll be glad to try to to uh, 
go through that with you, find out what the Bible can help you or, or whatever that points you in the right direction. We don't care if you agree with us or disagree. We don't even care if you're a believer or, or believe the Bible. We'd love for you to call if you don't believe the Bible. In fact, Gary might want to get to this later. We, we just read some survey results about people that right. believe the Bible. We'll get that in a few minutes. But we also, you can reach us by text message. And I've already got two or three texts this morning, a couple of different people. You can reach me at 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. Or you can reach Gary's number, Gary's uh, text number, 772-260-6220, 772-260-6220. And you can text us not only during the show, but any time during the week. Now, I hope we can get to some of these texts today uh, and other things, as well as a couple other. We'll try to move things along, but um, if you've texted the show, just be patient. We're going to try to get to that, and I know we've still got a couple of questions about Genesis still pending. Yes. If we can get to those, and I don't, and I don't even know what order to put these in, Gary, but, but let's just um, – you wanted to mention something, and then we'll go on and get into the show. I'll give you the numbers again in just a minute. Uh, let's let's go on and get those questions because I think that's more important. Okay. And I was going to mention John twelve forty eight, but that's. Uh, well, go ahead. That that's a that's a key verse as to why we use the Bible. Yes. What Jesus says. Basically, um, Jesus says the word that I have spoken will judge us in the last day. That's essentially a paraphrase of what he's saying. Uh, he does it in the context of if you don't accept my word, the word is going to judge you in the last day. And that's that's where he's coming from. So I recommend that if you want a Bible read, if you underline, get a Bible you can underline or highlight or do something with. Because some of these verses stand out as motivators, and this is one of them. And it's John 12, the Gospel of John, chapter 12 and verse 48. Please underline that. Right, right. That's our that's and, our premise here. And, and you know, it's interesting because a lot of people you hear them say, "Well, I, I something along the lines of, oh, I like Jesus, believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Bible." Well, there's no way that you can know anything about Jesus without the Bible. without without believing what the Bible says about him. Or they'll say, "Well, I, I don't like that verse. I don't think I don't really think Jesus believes that." But the only place we know that it is is in the Bible. Now, we can debate the, the uh, validity of various textual textual variants, I should say. We can debate the validity of those things. But that doesn't change the fact that what we know about Jesus comes from the, comes from the Bible. Now, we know that he existed, and we know a couple of basic things about him from his Greek and Roman historians and from Josephus. But what, what, he, what he really believed and said, we know from the Bible. So... It's an it's an impossibility logically to say I believe in Jesus but I don't like the Bible, and the strange thing is the really conundrum for people who say things like that they'll also say well I don't believe in that whale story and Jonah getting swallowed by the whale well Jesus endorsed that story, I don't believe in the flood well you know Jesus endorsed that story so you you've got to pick and choose about what you think so you you have no basis to do that logically speaking. And so what we're dealing with there is an emotional argument. I don't like the implications of what the Bible says. But I'm going to tell you something, Gary, and I'm a conservative Christian, you might say, from the world's viewpoint. Uh, more and more time goes by. <laughs> it's not like being a conservative Christian. You get comfortable 
with the things that Jesus says. Jesus says a lot of things that make me uncomfortable and, and because they're challenging. And, you know, they I, I know that as time goes by, how what a frail and a weak way that I can do these things that I do what Jesus says. But he demands that I try that demands that I do it. So in any event, that's that's one of the things that I, I keep coming back to, Mike, and I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. The Bible does not give you a choice. It is not one from column A, three from column B, and two from column C. You don't get to pick and choose. Basically, when you read the Bible, throughout the Bible, it says, this is the word of God, or Jehovah said. Now, your only choices are either he did or he didn't. Yes. This illustrates the fundamental conflict of the Bible with modern culture. And what we would call either postmodern or post postmodern culture, and that idea is that you get to pick your own um, truth. Yeah, your truth and my truth. So what people want is, well, I, I like this part of the Bible. I'll pick and choose my truth. You can have your uh, your other truth over there. Uh, and, and of course, the Bible doesn't give us that option. That's the right. point you're making, and that's the real fundamental conflict that's going on in our culture. Although it's being more and more assimilated by this postmodern thinking of in of a, a rank, uh, out of control individualism, I'm a very individualistic person, but I I think it can it's out of control in the fact that it doesn't respect what God says. Uh, and and so in any event, uh, we we got a couple of we got a caller on the line here before we get started here, Gary. Uh, Jerry's on the line. Jerry, what do you what's on your mind? Uh, thank you, Mike, for taking my call. Good morning, Gary. I was wondering, uh, this was uh, interesting what we're talking about. My, my question this morning is, uh, when they use the term apostolic church, uh, I, I'm just a layman. I, uh, are they talking about the fact that their church was built on the bones of St. Peter and the St. Peter Basilica? And, uh, so that, that's my question I was wondering about when I used the term apostolic church. And I'd like to look them off there if that'll be okay, Mike. That's fine, Jerry. Well, now, um, I'm going to give you my understanding of this, Jerry, and um, we may go uh, far afield on it. We'll have to see. The, the term in its most fundamental meaning of apostolic church, I would have, Gary and I are on the air here preaching that we need to go back to the apostolic church and practice what they did. Because what we're, and we're certainly not Roman Catholics, uh, what we're what we believe is that the church of the of the first century, and as found in the New Testament, was instructed by God through the Holy Spirit, instructed by Jesus through the Holy Spirit, how to live, how to practice, both as individuals and as a group. And those examples, those instructions, even the negative examples, are there for us to learn from and to follow. They're setting a pattern for us to live. And so we believe in going back to the apostolic church to find out our practice. Now, I think, though, that the Catholic Church, and maybe what you're reading here is using that term in a little different way. Fundamentally, I think what they're doing with the term apostolic church is they're trying to distinguish themselves from Protestantism. And they would say Martin Luther coming along in the 1500s and John Calvin in the 1500s is not establishing an apostolic church. So they would say Protestant churches, in their view, are not apostolic because 
they don't go back to, to the beginning, whereas since they have Peter and the apostles and his successors, that they are the apostolic church. The apostolic church is used by Catholics to mean the Catholic church. That's what they mean by that. That isn't how I would use the term at all, nor do I believe that the Catholic church as it exists today is the same as the New Testament church. I believe they are probably diametrically opposed on many levels. The teachings and the practices of the Catholic church are opposed to what the apostolic church did. We could have we could have a, a year's worth of shows on that already. So that's the way they're using it in the literature reading, Jerry. They're using it to mean Catholic church. I would use the phrase apostolic church to mean what was done during the time of lifetime of Christ and his apostles. Yeah, let me let me see. I I I totally agree with what Mike's saying. It's just I'm thinking of it from a different direction. They consider themselves the successors to the apostles. Correct. Okay, and by that they so through the popes, through the lineage of the popes, the popes, yes, right. And by that they see themselves as having the same authority as uh, Peter, Paul, James, John, you know, all of those. They're actually replacing the apostles that we see in the scripture with themselves. Right, that, and they believe that they, that that they have a right to be those the successor of the apostles. But we've discussed this issue of apostolic succession you know you could find a lot of people uh criticize catholicism for a lot of, in a lot of ways a lot of big and small ways fundamentally the issue that i have is authority papal authority if the pope is who they say he is i need to give him allegiance because he is indeed the vicar of christ on earth as if christ were on earth that is what the pope is and he therefore has authority if what they say about him is true. But if there is no biblical thing called apostolic succession, if that can be shown to be false, then the entire system of Roman Catholicism collapses completely. And I'll have to deal with all the individual doctrines like the, the, the assumption, bodily assumption of Mary and the Immaculate Conception of Mary and honoring saints and doing indulgences and holy water. I'll have to deal with that whole system. Because all of that is found in Catholic tradition. None of those things are found in the Bible. And therefore, if the Pope, if the Pope is not a successor to the apostles, then all that stuff that they teach is not in the Bible, has been added by humans, and should be rejected by people who call themselves faithful Christians. That, that's, the, that's the whole system in a nutshell. So the, the issue is... The issue is apostolic succession or the authority of the popes. Now, he, you also, Jerry, also asked about this being built on the bones of St. Peter, St. Peter's Basilica, and so forth. I don't think that, um, I, I don't think that this is, that, that, that that's accurate at all. I'm sorry, I'm reading a text here. I don't think that that's accurate at all. Because I don't believe that we have the bones of Saint of Peter in St. Peter's Basilica or anywhere else, as far as we know. In fact, we have no biblical evidence and very, very tiny smattering of historical evidence that Peter ever set foot in Rome. Now, the Bible says Paul was in Rome, if you believe the Bible, but it doesn't say Peter was in Rome at all. And so it's odd. Paul makes a much better first pope 
than Peter. I'm, I'm really kind of off. But see, the whole system is built on that verse in Matthew 16 and 18 that, where Jesus said he would give Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. They say that keys of the kingdom is like the keys to a Ferrari. You know, you get to run it wherever you want to go with it and you get to do whatever you want. And so God gave Peter the authority to do whatever he wanted to um, as the successor of Christ. And that's the that's a faulty interpretation of that verse. But that's why they build it on him. And that's why they have Peter in Rome. But there's no evidence in the Bible at all that Peter was in Rome and um, or ever was. So I, I don't believe that that's it at all. And I haven't found any historical evidence that has much backing at all that says he was in Rome. No, there just it is just isn't. Peter was given the charge of preaching to the Jews in general, even though he did open the kingdom to the Gentiles through Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. But after Paul came on the scene, Paul was given the charge to preach to the Gentiles. And God even told him that he would send him to Rome and he would stand before the leaders. So Paul was given the charge of going to Rome, as it were. And Paul was given the charge of preaching to the Gentile nations, and apparently Peter was not. He was given another duty in Christ's kingdom, just as important, but one that uh, is not as well known. So that's why in the book of Acts, Peter fades from the scene fairly early on, and Paul becomes the focus of the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is about the gospel being taken to to every corner of the earth, to the uttermost parts of the earth, you see. And that's the difference. John's texted in, there's no evidence in archaeology that Peter or Paul ever set foot in Rome. Uh, that may be true uh, in, in archaeology, but of course there's a lot, you know, the question is, do you believe that there's more evidence for a fact than what's found in archaeology? Well, by the uh, way, the, so, the construction of St. Peter's Basilica, according to what I found here, didn't start until 1506. Well, the, yeah, this construction, ironically, of St. Peter's Basilica is what le- what led to Martin Luther's 95 theses, because um, one of the Pope's emissaries, Johann von Tetzel, I believe his name was, the Pope sent him up into Germany to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica. So this is this is 1,400 years after Peter. A long time after Peter, before St. Peter's Basilica was ever built. But the implication you read from the Catholic Church is that this was all, goes all the way back to the beginning. In fact, they have a doctrine that was established in 1954, the doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary. And and if you read the Catholic literature on this, it will say, even though this was finally enunciated in 1954, that this has always been the teaching of the Holy Church. And uh, it's, it's just incredible when you read things like that. You know, your jaw drops because of how ridiculous that is, to be put out by intelligent people. And so many gullible people, as it were, excuse me for using the word gullible. Did you know, Gary, that a lot of people, you can tell them that the word gullible is written on the ceiling and they'll look up. So there you go. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) there. Oh, I'm getting it. I'm getting a notice that my power outage was caused by an animal. I bet a squirrel got electrocuted up in my transformer in the middle of the night. That's what they get. Sorry about that squirrel. But anyway, the point I'm making is that uh, we, we don't have archaeological evidence. We have evidence from the Bible that Paul was in Rome. 
St. Peter's Basilica was built in the 1500s. And what happened, I've started to tell you the story. Johann von Tetzel comes in Germany preaching things like that as soon as the money hits the bottom of my cup, the spirits of your dead relatives will be released from purgatory. You give me money and uh, God will release their spirits out of purgatory. You pay the indulgence. And so you could buy indulgences for your relatives or for yourself. You could prepay, as it were. You could keep sinning, as it were, and prepay for your sins so that when you died, you'd have a you'd have a free ride to heaven and not stay in purgatory until you purged all your sins. He even said he could forgive the rapists of the Virgin Mary if enough money was put in the pot. You know, stuff like this we have record of. Well, this enraged Martin Luther, who was a devout priest, as mistaken as he eventually became. He was a devout priest, a very conscientious young man. This, en- this enraged him, and that's when he nailed his theses. The 95 theses were about these indulgences that were being offered to get cash to pay for St. Peter's Basilica, ironically enough. And, oh, by the way, it took a little more than 120 years before it was open to be used. There you go, 120 years. That's a long time. Well, 1626 before they opened it up, according to this source. They lost a lot of people. In the intervening well, maybe it years, maybe took them that long to find Peter's bones. I don't know. Uh, well, as you've heard me <laughs> I'm say, sorry, be- I, as you've heard me say before, and I have no sympathy for all these relics and stuff. There, there's enough. I mean, they're telling you they've got little vials that have the breast milk of Mary in them. They got little vials that have, you know, the blood of Jesus. And this bone is a bone from this person or that person. There's enough wood in these Catholic relics. Wood that supposedly came from the ark, you know. I mean, there, there's enough wood that came from the cross to build Noah's ark around the world. I, I'm sorry, I do not believe that that God intended for us to save those relics, however important you may think they are, and then be, then to have people fall down and worship them. In, in fact, um, I mean, I probably told the story. I've told all my story. I, I need to keep a record of when I tell stories, Gary, but it's too late now. When we were in Israel, now this story is not going to sound, so hang on to the end of the story. I won't make it too long here because the the ending is what I'm meaning. I, we were in, in Jerusalem, and we went to the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a place where Christ was buried, and supposedly a place of the, where the, he was crucified. And when you walk in this building, there toward the entrance, as I remember it, was a stone sitting lay, sitting on the ground. It was, you know, five, six feet long, couple feet wide, maybe eight or ten inches high of that. It's a flat, big, obviously a carved stone. And these mostly women were bowed down over this stone, spread out on the kneeling down over this stone, many of them crying. And I didn't know what it was. It didn't look like it would be where something important happened. And we went through this building. I finally found out, as we got through there, that what that stone was. Now, I went on through there, and we came to the place where the cross was supposed to have been. And you've heard me tell this guy. I stood there at that place and saw the hole in the ground where maybe they put put the cross I turned to my wife and I began to weep. A very unexpected reaction. I couldn't believe that I was so moved. 
knowing in my mind that this probably was not the place where Christ was crucified. Or there could be, there could be and, no and yet to think that that was where it could have happened, it overwhelmed me for a moment. And we turned and went from there, and as I was going out, we found out that the reason these women were, were – uh, people were bowed down over that rock was that this is the place where they were saying that they took his body and laid it down on, on that rock. That's where they laid his body after they crucified him and got him ready for burial uh, and so forth. Now, if that were true, if you believed that, Gary, if you believed that that was the rock, what would be your reaction? You'd bow down over that rock too, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd want to touch that rock. It's a human – when you're there, it's a, it's, a, it's a human reaction. So I can't blame them in the sense that uh, uh, I'm not saying – I'm not trying to, to uh, criticize them. I'm saying I think they were doing it in ignorance. But if that were truly if – if that really was the rock, every Christian in the world ought to go there and bow down on that rock. This is my point. My point about this is not that we should go there and bow down the rock. The point is that's why God didn't leave these places for us. He didn't leave that kind of place. He didn't leave the wood from the cross. He didn't leave St. Peter's bones. He didn't leave any of that stuff for us because he knew what we would do with it, and maybe rightfully so. Well, see, that's that comes from. Does that, me. Make, it, does that, that make any sense to you? Yeah, that, I, that's that crazy. Comes me a little bit differently. See, right. I would, I would have seen that as. Or I think I would have seen that since I haven't been there, but I would have seen that as only a possibility and probably not. But when I walked, if I could walk on the surface of the temple and go over to the eastern side where Solomon's porch was and walk that area, I think that would be a very moving experience for me. There were, because I know there are several places where it's like that. Because I know from biblical description that he taught in that area. And you, you know that there's a, there's a synagogue at Capernaum, mm -hmm. and probably the only one, and they got part of the original floor of that synagogue exposed. That he and probably walked. He probably walked on that floor. I certainly saw that floor. You've got stones in the streets of Jerusalem that are first century stones. And, and you know that he walked on those streets. So... There's a lot of places the, like those, that. Those kind the, of the trees that are existed in the Garden of Gethsemane, some of them are from the first century. They were there when Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, now that's human. I understand, and I understood. I, I understood that 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 was only one of many places, but it's just funny how this hits you as a human being. And so, I think this is part of the reason why most everything like that has been destroyed and go is gone and so forth and and why and I think this especially happened ironically enough when God sent the Romans in to destroy Jerusalem that was part that of stuff the was destroyed that was part it may be reason. part of the reason and ironically enough though since the Jews were driven out it's probably the only reason any of these places were preserved if they were because the Jews were driven out <laughs> I mean the other place where you can go and be taken to be shown where Jesus was crucified is uh, a bus station in Israel. <laughs> it, underneath the, the hill is a bus station. You can't even get to it. They built some bleachers across the street. Some of the, some of the Gentiles have to look at this place from a distance because they can't get over there because it's a Jewish bus station. So if the Jews had their way, of course, all this stuff would be destroyed, except that they like the tourist money that comes in.
the great disdain they hold you in there is is palpable. You can feel it, except for except for opening your wallet. But but in any event, I don't think that the apostolic church is built on the bones of St. Peter and St. Peter's Basilica. I think the apostolic church is built upon, first of all, the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he said when he returned to heaven, I have many things to say to you, but I cannot you cannot bear them now. But when I am gone, I will send the Holy Spirit, the comforter to you, and he will guide you into all truth. That's the apostles. Then when he was raised from the dead and did ascend to the right hand of the Father, in Acts chapter 1, he said that uh, uh, he sent the apostles to the uttermost parts of the earth to go teach this message. Now, that's the beginning, and that's the foundation of the apostolic church. The crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ and the commission of his apostles to establish that church. And that's why Paul says that all of these people— he says after his lifetime, grievous wolves would enter into the flock from among the elders, from among the leaders, grievous wolves would enter in to destroy the flock. I believe this is what happened. I believe this is the apostasy, the falling away that led to this uh, modern so-called church, Catholic church and other denominations. And that's why this show is about going back to the beginning and just taking those words of the apostles. We discussed last week, Gary, in answer to a question um, about demons, that that even the power that, that uh, even, even demons were limited by the lifetime of the apostles, as it were. God gave the apostles and those who upon whom they laid their hands, specifically, gifts to cast out demons and do miracles. But those gifts were not passed on because it took the apostles' hands to pass the gift on. So they passed them on to one generation, after which time it began, the written word began to appear and was assembled together. So the conclusion the has pieces. to be that if these priests are the successor, or if this person, the Pope, is the successor to Peter, then he would not only have to heal the sick miraculously, he would have to be able to raise the dead. He would have to be able to do all the things that Peter did. The, sign, the signs that followed them, yeah, it says right. in Mark 16, 16. Now, of course, they will claim that uh, all these people perform miracles. The Catholic Church is the biggest proponent of modern-day miracles. People think it's Pentecostalism. I really think that's why there's, there's two reasons. But you, in the 60s and 70s, when the charismatic movement in the United States around the world really took off, you notice, and also true among Jehovah's Witnesses, strangely enough, that there was a connection between the Catholic Church and ex-Catholics and Pentecostals. Part of it is because of the, the connection between of believing in the miracles, that men had the power to do miracles. So in the charismatic churches, it passes from just a priest to just about everybody. You know, any kind of pastor can do miracles or miracle workers. Uh, but there's this strong connection to a central kind of leadership, a central authority figure. That you don't have in many places. So, but we don't have any record, verifiable record of anything where these people basically raised the dead. No, pa Paul could Paul raise the dead, yeah. but none of the other people did raise the dead. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. I hadn't thought about that that way, but that's true. Now, uh, John texts in. Paul said, "I know nothing but Christ crucified." And that's that's right. In other words, what that means in a very gen general way is that he didn't care about 
a person's lineage. He says, therefore, from now on, 2 Corinthians 5, 16, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. And he talks about them being a new creature and so forth. So he's saying that in that in Christ, we have to look at what the scriptures say is the truth about men and things, not in what humans propose to be. I know this is a strange connection, Gary. We don't want to get too far afield, but there's been all this huge mess in the last week or two in the Christian world over the report that was made in the Southern Baptist Convention of all these cases of sexual abuse in the last 20, 30 years, maybe more. Two or 3,000 cases of sexual abuse in, in, in uh, Baptist churches. Some of those are from people that worked in the Sunday schools or drove the buses or whatever the case may be. But many of those are from fairly high-profile men in Southern Baptist churches. This has really sent an earthquake through Protestant religion, as it were. And it's, you know, it's funny because people criticize the reason that there were Catholic priests abusing children is because of the teaching about celibacy. Ironically enough, here are all these Protestant preachers who don't believe in celibacy either. Well, let me say that again. <laughs> they, they don't believe that you have to be unmarried and celibate to be a priest or a servant of God. But apparently they don't believe you have to be restricted to just your wife to have sex either. They don't believe what the Bible says about sex either. I know the Catholic Church doesn't believe what the Bible says about sex. And apparently a whole lot of these uh, Baptist or Protestant preachers don't believe what the Bible says about sexual relations either. And the, to me, the connecting factor is not the teaching on celibacy. It's the exaltation of individual men beyond what Christ exalted them to be. What this verse is getting at regarding people according to the flesh. It is, as Paul said, do not do not hold anyone in greater respect than the word does. In First Corinthians four, so it's that that element. That's why you find it in in many mega churches and other smaller, even smaller churches where the pastor system is in place, where churches have one pastor, he has authority. It's his church or his family's church. You have this dynamic, the the power there overwhelms people and that leads to sexual sin well that's, it's that's, always been this way you know that's one of the reasons why elders were always in the plural in the church i believe that is one of the reasons now of course uh that that does not uh that does not guarantee anything no because but, both of the men could be of the same character but here's the difference here's here's the difference that is taught that where you have an error i believe that's taught in things and uh, hang on I'm trying to look something up here um, in, in denominationalism in Protestant denominationalism you'll have this idea taught that to become a pastor you have to have a calling and by that they mean a supernatural visit or sign from God that to call you into the ministry a miracle, as it were, of some sort to you that calls you to be a minister. And so you base your ministry 
on this calling that you received specifically from God to you. Doesn't matter if anybody else thinks you ought to be a minister or preacher. Isn't based on your character. It's just based on your fact that you got a calling. And you go around that young men go around telling people, "Well, I had a call," and then of course people fall fall along with that, and they they fall in line with that thinking. And so then, well, this young man received a call, so we're going to follow him because God called him as a pastor. Well, they go tell people, they preach it. God called me and my wife to, to pastor this church. Now, that is a dangerous thing. How does the Bible say elders or pastors sh- should be selected? Number one, what you said, there's more than one. There's more than each, one. Each church, we have, he appointed pastors in various, in different churches. Secondly, what's the criteria for becoming a pastor according to the Bible? Is it receiving a special miraculous call individually no. in the middle of the night? It's no, character it, qualifications. Yeah, it's character qualifications and to some degree knowledge that he they not well, be they not be novices. Right. Okay. They have to have some knowledge. And generally they will be the older men of the, the group, I think. Is well, that's the general. kind of man they have to be, yeah. more mature, not young people. But when he lists out what kind of men they ought to be. He doesn't say that they've received some special call, and you can tell because that God gave them a miracle to do, or some. It doesn't say they're even called because they have a gift. Doesn't say that that's why they became a minister because they have some special gift of talking. And so that would mean that the better gift you have of talking, the more qualified you are to be a, a pastor. He qualifies them based on the characteristics. Listen, partly you listed not being a greedy person being self-controlled, being the husband of one wife, right. which speaks to this whole idea of sexual purity and so forth. And so he lists the character qualifications and the behavioral qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. You need to go read those. Believing, that takes it out of this idea that, oh, I got a special calling, so you got to follow me. Believing children, having ruled or managed his family well, the, these are all things that you know they need to have. But Mike, perhaps maybe we we need to summarize this thought about the Catholic Church and see if we can get on to uh, some of those things about Genesis that we need to get to and get to, get through some of those. Uh, we I think we need to do. My personal feeling is we need to do a better job of getting to some of our text messages too. That's probably right. Let me read one more verse about this. This verse I was. This is First Corinthians four six. Here Paul is trying to get after one of these groups of people that was trusting in, as it were, celebrities uh, for leadership. That's the Corinthian church. Now, he says, now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. We, We live in a celebrity culture. And so these celebrity pastors, going back for 30 years, have been given a pass by people. There is no place in the churches of Jesus Christ for the sexual abuse of teenagers or young girls or young men or even the even uh, uh, adultery and so forth on the part of uh, older men toward uh, other women in the church. We be, be, One of the failures is these churches that are built on the celebrity status of a pastor and giving him some kind of special authority or standing in the church. 
we need to attack the problem there partly as long as our, as well as our teaching about sexuality all right so we i don't even know where we were but we got we did get we're going to have to put off a couple of these texts because they came in after the one that we got last week which was about the book of or two weeks maybe it's three weeks now in the book of Genesis, Is that the yeah, one you're we, talking about. Yeah, we need to get to yeah. that. So, so let's just start and take take these in order. And I know Jason sent a text or two in with some questions, and, and he he sent in a question about uh, our opinion about the Catholic Church banning Nancy Pelosi from receiving communion and so forth. And and we'll we'll try to get to that soon. I'd love to talk about that, but we'll we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna restrain ourselves just a little and go back to this idea. Now let's see if I can find this text. I think I read it. I've got it right here. Just give me just a second. That. Uh, well, let me just say one, go ahead. one or two sentences about that. Within the doctrine of the Catholic Church, they certainly have the authority to do that, but they do not have any authority to come between Nancy Pelosi and God. Probably the only person that comes between Nancy Pelosi and God is Nancy Pelosi. So that, that's 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 my now thought. look. She's the one that's a Catholic though and proclaims right. loudly what a faithful right. Catholic she is. I would Somebody say said, with, oh, well, that's with, not your job. She told the Pope that's not your job, or told the Bishop that's not yeah. your job. It is his job to deny her communion. Exactly. If you understand the job of a of a Catholic uh, within, bishop within their doctrine and rules, he did exactly the right thing. Exactly. Now, whether you agree or not, it's just another so story. Else. And whether, whether, and I don't think the Catholic Church is correct in their view of what a bishop should be doing, and they're not even correct in their view of communion. Communion does not make you holy. It isn't right. even a sign that you are holy. It's a sign so, of remembrance of, a, of, of Christ's death. So let's take that one and off the we'll, list we'll, and let's go. We'll go back. All right. So we got a note two or three weeks ago from John that says, I find it interesting that Genesis has two separate creation stories. The second creation, starting in Genesis 2-4, has women created from his rib. Uh, Genesis 1 has men and women created at the same time. Genesis 2 seems to say that one was only created because Adam was lonely. Maybe next week you can cover these two creation stories. So, in any event, um, yes, we can We can do that. And, and if I think if you'll go back, and John is right to notice that there is a difference in the way that the creation is presented in between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, just as a side note, Genesis chapter 1 should extend down through the chapter break and go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. You know, it should be, the, the chapter break should have been all the way down at the end of day 7, not the end of day 6, as it's presented in, in, in your Bible. But in the event, the subject matter has a break between Genesis 2, 3 and Genesis 2, 4, and you have two accounts of creation. And so a lot of people have focused on that. Some of the, uh, I, I think it's much simpler than most people make it as an explanation, which we can come to. I don't know what you think about that, Gary. Well, but, I, basically my view is there were two different things that needed to be presented relative to the creation and these are just a, this is just a way of presenting those two different ideas right well then let's do it the backward let's go look at kind of the text as far as the presentation of the text and then we'll go back and look at how we got to the point of saying they contradict each other 
because I don't think they do I don't, I don't think they each other. Contradict each but I do think they present two separate accounts of what was happening there. Now we, we're not going to take the time to read this whole this whole uh, text, but if you can recall or go back and read later on after the show, Genesis one presents a general overview of creation in six days and God resting on the seventh day. And that's where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Then he begins to to count off six days of God rearranging things. When it says that the earth was without form, that word in in the Greek translation is chaos, unorganized, chaotic. And then when it says without form and void means empty, means there was no life. So in the beginning, it just makes a statement, in the beginning, the earth the heavens and the earth, maybe the universe, heavens and earth, that we know them, uh, however you take the phrase heavens and earth, didn't have any life in it, and it was in chaos. Then starting with verse 3, I think it is, or 4, day 1, God organizes things. Let there be light, and then let the land divide from the, from the sea, and then he creates the different forms of animals and so forth. Each day represents a different set of separations and ordering. God is bringing into order the thing that was chaotic. Eventually, then he creates life in this, in this empty universe he had. And, that, and then chapter 1 ends by saying that when God saw all this, he said it's very good. It's, in other words, it's exactly the way I wanted it to be. So he took him, he used six days, and each one of those days involved his word, and God said, and then God divided, and God called or named different things. It's a setting in order, and if you were to diagram it, I've got a diagram I can put up on the screen if you were here. If you diagram it, you see it's kind of a repetitive story. He repeats within each section of a few verses about each day, morning and evening, he repeats the same sort of things about each set of events. In that, the last of these things is God creating mankind, verses 26, 27. Let us make man in our own image, and in the image of man he made, of, of God he made him. He made male and female, it says, he made them. That's the creation story of chapter 1. It's not like this isn't supposed to be an exhaustive statement about the creation of man. Never said, it's just a general summary of how things got here. And here's the ironic thing about that. There are two or three things that indicate this is the God leaves all that behind. Once once we get to chapter two of the Bible, God leaves all the details of this creation story and how we got here all behind. We don't hardly ever hear it addressed again because it's a little consequence to the message of the Bible. I don't mean it's a little consequence altogether, but it's, it's a little consequence to the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is not in detail how we got here. We got here by the hand of God. It's what do you do now that you're here? What should humans be doing? And what did God do in response to what humans did? And so it's a very anthropocentric, anthrocentric narrative, as they say, a narrative centered on man as the culmination. Now, when you get to chapter two, verse four of the book of Genesis, there's a kind of a shift because there's a uh, different kind of history here. Right. This it says this is the history. Now he's going to tell another story. Now, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. See, 
So he's going to tell a different angle of the story. And in chapter two, he zooms in with a with a close up lens on the creation of man, not the creation of the heavens and the earth. See, he summarized more of that even in verse four, I think it is. And he made the stars also. All this stuff about the cosmos and the universe and all that, he just summarizes, and he made the stars also. All those galaxies, all those black holes, everything is summarized in one simple statement, and he made the stars also. God is not focused on that. I don't even think he thinks we, it's not important that we be focused on that. The real focus begins to be zeroed in on in chapter 2. And this is when this he is, makes Adam and Eve separate from each other and tells them how to this live. This is the focus on man and where he is put into the earth and how he lives and the conditions under which he's living on the earth. Right. That those are put there so that we understand some things about, you know, we wouldn't have any way with, with just chapter one, we wouldn't have any way of knowing about the Garden of Eden or the conditions under which Adam and Eve lived or the commands that they were given. Right. This This is now an explanation of how we got to where we are today. Right. This, that's what this is. Uh, there's a couple of corresponding verses. If you look at Genesis 1.12, it says that the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. But when you run down to Genesis chapter 2, uh, and uh, beginning in verse 7, I think it is. Let me double-check that. Yeah, uh, he has a longer dissertation about this in Genesis 2, uh, beginning about verse 7, and he says he formed man of the dust of the ground, and then he says here's the he planted a garden eastward in Eden out of the ground. God made every plant to grow. So this is, a, once again, zooming in from the general statement about making plants and animals to the specifics of what that looked like from the beginning. And that really is the fundamental difference between those. When you look at chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, where he makes man in his own image and male and female he made, you see that corresponds to Genesis chapter 2, beginning verse 7 through 25, where he, where he sees that Adam is alone. He intended it to be this way. He wants Adam to recognize this. He's alone. And so he then takes from his rib and makes a woman and gives her to the man and says, this is now what's supposed to be like. So this is just a zooming in on the on the general statement found in chapter one. Now, what happened? And that's there's some other contradictions I've got somewhere listed here, but our, our time is slipping away. We might come back to those in just a second. But. This, what, is how what, we, this is basically how we got to where we are today. This is the beginning of how. The reason why God sent his son to the earth. Right. This is why it's all unfolding the way it does throughout the rest of the Bible. So this is, and, and I keep saying this is not a contradiction. Now, if you want to believe, as I talked about one of the books, if you want to believe this is an edit by a later inspired writer, that's okay with me. But basically, I don't find any absolute reason to look at that that way. Is that that I make that clear? Yeah. So you're saying, in your view, it's certainly possible that Genesis two 
it was certainly added possible. later by Moses or, or some other Jeremiah. Or well, I would think Moses wrote both of these, but basically they may have been in separate books. They may have been in a separate scroll. Uh, they may not have been welded together too good. But say Jeremiah, for instance, I have no problem with that as, as an inspired prophet that he folded these together into one book. That doesn't bother me any. Does that make sense to you, Mike? Yes, of course. I, I guess the, the Jews, the Jews always considered that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Well, I still from believe from ancient history. Now, the, these two accounts. My personal belief is these two accounts were written by Moses. I believe Jeremiah or some other inspired writer may have folded them together or put them in this order, but I don't. I don't think that Jeremiah came up and wrote this later or someone else. Right. Now, uh, John texts in about the, this book, I think it was mentioned before, and I think you have this book, Gary, called Who Wrote, Who Wrote the, the Bible, Bible by yes. Elliot Friedman. Yes. And, and I haven't, I have to confess, I haven't read that book. I've read the other books like that um, and studied this in uh, my biblical studies training and so forth in college. But, uh, and, and it's basically a, a, a popularized introduction to the JEDP critical theory from the Germans in the late 1700s, early 1800s, from the German biblical critics who were basically unbelievers for the most part. And what they were saying is that they were, that the texts of the Torah and of the Old Testament in particular, and his Torah, I should say, the Old Testament and the Torah in particular, Torah being the first five books, were composed of different groups of people over time. There was the Jehovah. It all starts with the idea that in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, you have God called Elohim. Yes. El or Elohim. And in Genesis 2, he's called Jehovah God, Yahweh, Jehovah. So you have the J is the Jehovah writer who, who is a different person who believed different things about God than the Elohim writer who only believed in a generic kind of God. And so the J and the E are two different people who have two different sets of beliefs um, that may or may not have come from God. And then the um, the D is the Deuteronomic uh, redactor, he's called. He then takes the text and edits it out and changes what he doesn't like about it, edits out the Bible text, redacts it. That's why you have some of these differences. No, and I, then you have the I, P, I the priestly element. The priest came along and said, well, we got to solidify it more of a political thing. We have to solidify our position. So we're going to add in all of these rules and regulations known as the law of Moses. We're going to add all that in. This happened at a later date. So you have these forces in ancient Israel that were competing against one another over a period of time. And somebody came along and kind of put all these stories together. It wasn't Moses. wasn't God through inspired men. But it's, and, and so that's that's the reason why people have focused on dividing Genesis one and two. It became like the first critical point where you make this distinction between the J and the E in critical theory. It, it reminds me a little bit, although these are pretty smart men of Ph.D. students, they master's students who always have to have something different to write about. And so they come up, have to come up with some thesis that nobody else has thought of before. Sometimes that's useful. Sometimes it's not useful. And that's what happened here. I, I don't think there's meant to be, in God's mind, a serious difference or contradiction 
between the writers who call him Elohim and the writers who call him specifically Jehovah. We find that sometimes he's called El in the Bible and sometimes he's called Jehovah or Yahweh. And Yahweh is his name. El is who he is. He is God. He is the uh, pre-existent one. But Yahweh is his name or Jehovah is his name. So, of course, there's a difference uh, because those two things are I'm a husband, but I'm also Mike and I'm a father. So it depends on who's who's talking to me about it as to what my name is or how you're going to call me. Doesn't mean I'm two or three different people. Well, see, one of the things that 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 gave me a problem with the book that we were talking about here. Who wrote the Bible? Who that wrote book? the Bible is with all these different, you know, just because it's worded different or just because it has a little bit difference in language used or words used, he, he assigns it to another author. Um, I don't think that's the case. I'll just tell you that in my own experience in having to work and, and write things, particularly uh, write the descriptions of what I've done with different designs or different tests that are made, I write differently from day to day. I don't always write the same way. And that's the fallacy of people looking at vocabulary and saying, right. well, Paul couldn't have written that. And especially concerning vocabulary. what I'm writing concerning the results of a test and what I'm writing as a result of a design that I did, I use a different language. Right. Um, so these are not, and, and I don't go along with these different author theories. I do see that inspired writers later on may have taken books that perhaps Isaiah wrote, you know, here's a scroll because the word of God came. And it says in Isaiah several times, the word of God came to Isaiah and said, write this down. Right. So he, he may have written it on something else. And at some point later on, an, another inspired author, just guess Jeremiah maybe took these things and put them together in one book form. Right. I don't have a problem with that. Okay. It is always brought up like at the end of Deuteronomy, you see yeah. Moses, Moses death and burial recorded. Yeah. Well, could Moses have done that? Well, no, Moses might not have, but it doesn't say that God didn't reveal it to him before he died. This is what it would be until him to write it down. We just don't know that. So one right. theory is that uh, maybe Joshua wrote that, little last part of the book and so forth uh, that doesn't substantiate this theory that the bible is just a book comprised by different people with competing interest over a long period of time and it's been put into one thing and, and this is used to justify what some people view uh, the contradictions in the bible well, it's obvious the bible contradicts itself because it was written by all these different people and that's the part that i reject i don't think that's true i don't think I don't think Genesis 1 and 2 contradict each other. Do they give different stories, different accounts? Yes. And, for example, it is hard to understand all the events that supposedly took place around the creation of Adam. It's happening happened in 24 hours. Him being created, figuring out he needed a companion, naming all the animals, having the putting in a deep sleep, and then woman coming. You know, it's hard to see this all in 24 hours, but it certainly isn't impossible. For that to be the case, you see. Well, our time yeah, is we're, basically we're, gone today. Yeah. Five, sum this up real quick, Gary. Now we need to summarize. It. Well, we need to get, I don't. Get out I don't here. mind the problem that an inspired author such as Jeremiah took things that, say, Isaiah wrote on different 
different at different times under different circumstances on different pieces of paper are what Moses wrote and welded them together. Okay. I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem with all these different authors. All right. All right. Well, our time is gone today. We really appreciate you listening. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to try to get hold of that book, by the way, Gary. But take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com. Hope you'll tune in again next week, and may God bless you. WPSL Port St. Lucie.